I think socially we have a somewhat of a fascination with I like to call it like uh, knowing about things concepts or ideas this intellectual knowledge uh, much more so than experiential knowledge or wisdom the knowing and understanding of how things function and how they affect us I think there is use for both conceptual knowledge or intellectual knowledge and also this experiential or this kind of wisdom. In some sense, the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, a lot of times, oftentimes, are referred to as a Dharma map. Uh, We actually have a poster back there that kind of maps out a lot of the practices that the Buddha offered. And this map is important because it gives us some sense of landmarks and things that we can form for our practice that can help us to know if we're on the right track, going in the right direction. And so these concepts or these ideas or knowing about Buddhism or about the Dharma, this information is important and in a sense that's why we do this here is have a dharma talk or some instruction because it gives us that sense of place to rest so the dharma map is laid out but we also need to learn for ourselves each one of us for ourselves how to walk the terrain we need to know Uh, that we can look up from the map and experience and develop our own wisdom. The Buddha's teaching, the Dharma, this path of awakening, is emphasizes clear comprehension and wisdom. A seeing-for-yourself kind of attitude. This word in Pali Sanskrit, this ancient word, ehipasiko, means uh, to see for yourself what's true. The Dharma, meaning truth, meaning what's true for you experientially. What do you feel and know based on your wisdom to be true, to be helpful, to be useful? So how do we develop this wisdom for ourselves, the primary practice that we're doing is is developing this capacity for mindfulness. The ability or the capacity to objectively observe or monitor our thoughts, our emotions, our sensations in the here and now. The Dharma is oftentimes, and throughout the Buddhist text, text referred to as something that's immediate and available. It's, uh, sometimes uh, Stephen Batchelor talks about the vis- visible Dharma. And so what we're trying to do is, what we're hoping to do is to live more, uh, more from the right here, right? more from our direct experience. And maybe we can all tell that this 
takes a little bit of practice and a little bit of diligence. It's not so easy. It's almost a little bit easier to not be present, especially societally with advances in technology and our busyness and all of the to-do lists that I know we all have. It's hard to kind of wake up from the habit of the mind. So this is uh, the opportunity through mindfulness to look into what, how do my thoughts, my emotions, uh, sensations, my behaviors, relationships contribute to my well-being, excitement, joy, meaning, purpose, fulfillment? What are the causes of my obsessions, compulsions, afflictive emotions? Seeing how our beliefs and views influence our behaviors and our thought patterns. This conditioning that we all come with. Mindfulness helps us to look into that. And uh, this type of awareness is not always good news, but it's always good information. And so... This is the Dharma. This is what we develop wisdom or insight into is our own patterning. We develop wisdom into what are the causes and conditions of our ease and well-being. What are the causes and conditions of stress and distress? And being really willing to be honest about that. This practice, a long-term practice and dedication to the practice can kind of blow you wide open a little bit in the sense of, uh, I didn't really sign up for all of this, you know? Whole ignorance is bliss. Maybe wouldn't go so far, but it definitely is convenient sometimes. (coughs) So tonight I wanted to talk about mindfulness in particular as it relates to emotion and emotion regulation. Emotion is one of the more confusing aspects of the human lived experience, uh, from my own experience at least. Uh, Even in science and Western psychology, we have a lot of debate and dissension around what the fuck emotion is and how we manage that. that, It can be really confusing, and even the... Uh, you know, emotion, the idea of emotion and being mindful of emotion wasn't really alive and around during the time of the Buddha. This word was etymologically first introduced in France around the 12th century, and what it means is, uh, I think it's like emouvoir or something, I don't speak French, uh, which means to stir up. So this is the part of the human experience that stirs us up that moves us out, that agitates. One of my favorite definitions of this word, because mostly it's simple, is felt sensations that arise as the result of perceived threats or opportunities in our environment. So this is felt sensations. So this is a body-mind process, emotion. So felt sensations that arise as the result of perceived 
threats or opportunities in our environment. And our environment can be out here, but our environment's also the, the inner environment. And so I have a pain in my knee and this perceived threat evokes the feeling of anxiety or some fear or the inclination to move, to shift my weight. So there are a couple ways that uh, I want to look at how emotions arise. Now, I'm a visual learner, and we never do anything visual here, so I decided feeling fun tonight, we do a little visual demonstration. It helped me so I could spell things correctly ahead of time. Um, so we want to look at two frameworks, or I want to. I want to look at the traditional Buddhist psychological framework for emotion, which there isn't really any, but we'll talk about that. And then the Western psychological, very oversimplified version of that. So this is what uh, is kind of the foundation of Buddhist psychology. The Buddha was not so much a spiritual guru as much as he was a radical psychologist. What the Buddha was interested in is how do we self-generate stress and how do we alleviate that? What is the cause of our suffering and how can we work to reduce that? And so this model is called the aggregate system and how it works is basically in the present, here we are, we make contact with our environment, whether our inner or outer environment, through our senses. Seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, feeling. We can also make contact as we're sitting here with our cognitive process, right? I work with a lot of adolescents and sometimes I look around the room and they're like staring blankly into the corner. You know, their attention, they're making contact with some thought or some memory or some daydream or some fantasy, right? But their attention is somewhere. And so basically what happens is we're very sensitive because we have our senses. We have a nervous system that functions like an electrical unit. And so we take in, we input information, and we have all of our memories and past perceptions and conditioning And this affects us constantly, every moment. The present moment isn't a noun. The present moment's a verb. So what's happening is uh, not somewhere, you know, we're not trying to ever get to the present moment. What we're trying to do is to be more attuned to our sensitivity through practice. And to acknowledge and to understand that how we perceive and how we feel determine how we act. And so that's the basis of the Buddhist psychological miles. We make contact with the world through our senses and thinking. And a couple things automatically arise. You get feeling and perception. And I don't mean emotion when I mean feeling. I mean just the basic, I like it, I don't like it, I don't care. You know, for example, if you put your attention on the bottom of your left foot right now, unless you're sitting cross-legged like me, it's probably pretty neutral. You probably wouldn't drive down the road and your attention gets lost in the feeling at the bottom of your left foot. 
right? Our attention's not always so interested in neutral feeling. It's most interested, we know, in neuroscience in what's unpleasant. They call this the negativity bias. So the nervous system's kind of on the lookout for what's the cause of our discomfort a lot of the time. And so the starting point of this is just the primary likes and dislikes that are registered through our senses. We get feeling, and then you get also perception. Perception is conditioned through our memory. So I know, I picked, last time I did this, I picked on Mikey. I know Zuby because uh, of my experiences with him. And so when I see him, I make contact with seeing him or I hear him talking in the hallway before I even see him. Uh, There's a feeling that arises, pleasant, friend, you know, and a perception, friend, and a whole list of experiences that we've had. And I don't have to consciously think. It's just the Zuby package comes online, right? He comes with his own software program. And this is how this kind of works. And then based upon our feeling and perception, what happens is we're inclined to take a stance towards the thing, towards the thought, towards the sight, the sound, towards the feeling, towards the perception. We're inclined to do, this is what I call the to-do mind, we're inclined to do something. So I might say hi to Zuby, or maybe he pissed me off last time we talked, right? So my feeling... And perception change. It's more unpleasant. So I'm inclined to avoid if I'm passive or confront if I'm confrontational. Our inclinations are also patterned by our family experiences, by our culture. So all of this conditioning uh, moves on and on and on. So the purpose of this is to kind of give us some insight into how our Feelings and perceptions act together to evoke response. Uh, I was at the gym two days ago, and uh, I've been sick for like a few days. I have this head cold. I already talk, you can probably tell, really fucking loud. And I've been told this my whole life, that I talk loudly. And I have this head cold, so I'm talking even louder, and I'm on the phone with someone... That person's actually here, you know. And I'm talking to this person, and I'm talking really loud. And you'd think that the gym would be a loud place, but it's actually, if you ever listen, like everyone's listening to music, so it's like dead quiet. Probably be a good place to meditate. So I'm listening, I'm I'm talking to my friend, uh, and this guy, I see, I make contact, sight, I see out of my periphery, this guy starts walking up to me automatically I had a little bit of like some anxiety because I was trying to talk and then I had this other stimulus come into my awareness and then I had the perception, the thought from my past experience that probably this guy wants to use the machine I'm on he's about to ask me how long I have and so I hear him contact, hear him say "Uh, I'm going to need you to wrap that up (laughs) and I say this motherfucker, right? <laughs> but I was like, you know, whatever. I've probably been on the machine a little while, and I was like, and so I, but I was kind of confused. So my, you know, the feeling and perception, they were kind of alternating. How should I take this? What's happening here? And so I was inclined to question further. What do you mean? 
you need me to wrap this up, right? Are you asking about the machine or what are you talking about? He said, well, I just noticed that other people are looking at you because you're talking really loud. And he pointed to the no cell phones sign. And he said, and you can't talk on the phone here. I wouldn't have said anything, but everyone else is looking at you, and it's really clear you're being distracted, and the rule says that you can't talk on your phone, so I'm going to need you to wrap it up, right? All right, so, uh, very unpleasant. I'm sitting here with all of my perceptions about this guy, and I'm kind of, you know, mindfulness is showing up, which is good information, but not always good news. And so I'm realizing how pissed I am. My blood's boiling. I can feel it. My thoughts are going a thousand a second. How am I going to respond? How am I going to react? My inclination from my own pattern of living with my family system and so on and so forth is to be more passive aggressive than aggressive. But I have this tendency where I have a threshold. I don't have a really good middle of the ground. So I either go passive or overly aggressive. Right? So in this moment, I made the conscious decision. I looked around, didn't want to make it worse, right? And so I said, I'll get off in a couple minutes. Thank you. And so it's interesting to see how my perception of uh, you know, he may want me to get off this machine changed based upon uh, gathering further information and how my uh, feeling of acknowledging that this was unpleasant and that I want to react to it in some way, how that all shifted in just a moment's time. All right, from a Western psychological perspective, there we go. I think this, I like to overlap these two because it's interesting to see how similar they are. You get a triggering event, an activating event, and you attune to it, so attention. Triggering event, attention, and then you have an appraisal process. Appraisal is based upon your perception, which means your memory and your past experiences, and what you predict or believe are your short-term and long-term goals, what you want to get out of it. The appraisal process is one of the points where we start to really get ourselves into trouble. The actual definition, I think this is funny, of appraisal is an expert assessment of the value of something. So this is where I become the expert of what's happening. You can see this is a lot of times where we, uh, we start to appraise a situation and then because of that you get the feeling. Is this a threat, a perceived threat, a perceived opportunity? Or is it someone neutral and I don't really experience much emotion around it? So you get a triggering event, you're, you attune to it, you appraise it, you get a feeling or emotion... And then there's a malleability process, which sounds crazy, but what this means is basically you have a dynamic set of responses. So emotion is not one thing, right? Emotion is dynamic. It's physiological. It's psychological. 
It's a call to act in a lot of ways. And so depending upon what we pay attention to and what we do next can influence the emotion itself. So where mindfulness really helps out is helping us to reevaluate our appraisal process. Is this really as much of a threat or an opportunity as I see it as? And how much do I want to feed this emotion or how do I want to respond and maybe regulate the emotion? Does that make sense? And so this is that process. Last one. Thank you, sir. Yep, yep. <laughs> so how emotions arise, and then what we want to know is how does mindfulness help us to manage emotion? The first thing that we develop through mindfulness practice is the access and the ability to have simple awareness or what sometimes we call bare attention. What we know in neuroscience is that attention is present in every mind moment. So every moment that you're conscious or awake, your attention is always somewhere and whatever you pay attention to gets magnified. I sometimes relate this to going to watch a movie Uh, You go into the movie theater, and if the writer, the director, the actors, the cinematographers, the sound folks did a good job at putting it together, you'll feel an emotional response to the film itself. You'll feel almost like you're a subject in the film. You're not sitting around while you're watching a movie thinking about how you're watching a movie the whole time, hopefully, if they do a good job. And the emotional experience in our cognitive world have this same effect on us. They're very compelling, and they make us the subject of the story. Emotion's job with the amygdala is to be able to override your ability to rationally think, because if you have opportunities or threats, you don't need to... uh, map it all out, do a SWOT analysis, right? Now, in our modern day, we would like to have that ability to do a SWOT analysis or to think about it a little bit longer, but this emotion system that we're on is very ancient. A lot of neuroscientists say that we're in a drastic need of an upgrade as far as our brain goes. So emotions can override. Simple awareness is simply seeing how we're being affected by our experience tuning into our sensitivity I was feeling this and this happened I feel like this now right this is just that very bare ability to attune to what's actually going on and it sounds simple but we can see that a lot of times I know for myself this is one of the things that's the first to go Right? I get checked out, or I get in a rush, or I get busy or preoccupied, and I forget the simple fact that I can be aware of what's happening as it's happening and seeing how it affects. Being able to flip from the subject of the story that the emotion and the thought process is telling us to just notice that we can observe our thoughts or observe the emotion itself. Uh, the second thing that we want to, or we start to develop through mindfulness practice, it's not linear, but one of the qualities that builds on simple awareness is what we would call protective awareness. Uh, the Buddha talked about this as guarding the senses. 
throughout a lot of the discourses in the Buddhist texts, the early Buddhist texts, the Buddha encouraged us to practice something called Yaniso Manasakara, which means careful attention. He said that because whatever we pay attention to gets magnified, we want to be very careful about what we place our attention on. And so we want to somewhat guard, this doesn't mean repress, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit, but to guard and to be very careful about how much we tend to distressing thoughts and distressing emotions and how much we reactivate those emotional states. So from a behavior perspective, this may be healthily avoiding situations that trigger unwanted emotions. And we need to balance that with having some distress tolerance for things that we usually don't want to tolerate. And so, you know, the Buddha would encourage, he encouraged us to have wise association, to associate with people that were supportive of our practice and supportive of the qualities of compassion and non-harming. And that people that take on these ideals, these values as a part of their life experience... So this, in a way, is guarding. Uh, Also, we want to guard our attention from getting caught up in destructive cycles of thinking or afflictive emotion patterns. Uh, One, for example, is anxiety. So what is anxiety is one question, then how does it manifest is another. And we're most interested in how does anxiety manifest. Well, there may be genetic components that lead to it. There may be a number of reasons why one would have anxiety. But what's most important is what is it? How does it function? Usually, anxiety is the result of having some fear or worry Expectation, not knowing what to expect causes anxiety or expecting something bad to happen causes anxiety. So once, and we call this mental proliferation, the Buddha talked about this too as papancha or the spreading out effect of the mind. So once I have a thought that is full of fear or worry, what happens is one thought turns into two, two thoughts turn into five, Right? And they amplify, they spread out, they proliferate, they ruminate. And it causes a cycle. And then what happens is what was an activating event that triggered an emotion then becomes fed by uh, our thoughts. Mindfulness helps us to protect and to acknowledge that anxiety is present and that at least not adding to it is something that's good to do. Healthily distracting or using some of the mindfulness skills that uh, we have through our own practice to not entice the anxiety to spiral and grow. One of the forerunners to anxiety is anticipation. Anticipation is the constant chronic state of leaning into the next. It's this sense of What's going to happen next, right? What's the next thing on the list, or what do I have to do next? And so we can start to also guard the senses by acknowledging when the mind has this tendency, and this is a strong pattern. Not getting rid of the pattern, but seeing when it activates what's going to happen next, or when the mind starts to move forward, 
and you can start to bring it back like we did tonight, softening into the body, acknowledging sounds, giving yourself a place to rest. Uh, the third thing that kind of grows, when protective awareness fails, we depend upon introspective awareness. I like to actually read this. Introspective awareness, or it says, when the protective awareness fails, introspective awareness is the type of awareness that has the ability to look into the mind and see if there are any unskillful qualities that have already taken root. So introspective awareness is, in a sense, radical accountability. It's saying that I have anger, for example, in my mind. Not good news, but definitely good information. This helps us to start to break our cycle of looking for the external cause of our emotions and instead access and understand the emotions themselves. Does that make sense? One of our biggest habits is to look out here for what's causing the emotion. We have this endless to-do mind that wants to fix or to change the conditions to get rid of or to regulate the emotion. And this is brilliant because, you know, I'd say six times out of ten, you can change conditions to regulate emotion. But there are a lot of things that I am anxious about, for example, that I can't change right now. But if I can acknowledge and take responsibility that anxiety is present, I can start to develop accountability. It's not you that are causing the anxiety necessarily as much as anxiety is present in my mind, in my body. So it helps us develop accountability, responsibility, which is the ability to respond to it, which then we learn how to manage emotion. And it helps us to develop distress tolerance. Socially, culturally, especially in this culture and society, we are uh, somewhat, we've kind of declared a war on unpleasant emotions. From a mindfulness-based perspective and from the Buddhist perspective, there's no such thing as good or bad emotion. Emotions have functions, but they activate And they're not necessarily accurate for the given context of what's happening. And so we want to take responsibility for them so we can quickly acknowledge, we can tolerate some anxiety, and we can maybe manage some of it. Um, Introspective awareness also helps with uh, chronic emotions. So, for example, if you have post-traumatic stress... If you uh, experience intense emotion or depression or anxiety, uh, introspective awareness is the gauge that helps us remember that emotions aren't static. So one of the things that really sucks about emotions is they leave residue. They call them residual effects. And so when you have uh, depression, actually your depression goes up and down. It changes. I know as someone that experiences and has experienced Uh, pretty severe depression at points in my life. It does go up and down, but the residual effect of it gives it the sense that it's always been here and it's always going to be here. And so introspective awareness says, no, 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 how is it now? 
right? Is it a 10? Is it an 8? Is it a 9? How is it felt? How does it manifest? It has more curiosity and more, more of that. The Buddha said to also not only notice when intense emotions are present, but, but, and this is the harder practice, to notice when they're not. And this is when I rarely, you know, I rarely see myself uh, saying I'm really not fucking angry right now, right? I don't have that conscious thought. Oh, wow, I'm really not anxious. You know, I'm really not depressed. But we know this introspective awareness, and we know this type, I just got over being sick. And you know when you get sick and you, then you're well, you feel so much better. But really, it's like we come to expect that the baseline is feeling normal. You know, and so introspective awareness acknowledges that things are always changing and we get to be accountable for where they're at now. Uh, the other category is intentionally forming concepts, which doesn't sound that cool. This is intentionally using our thinking capacity to reflect on concepts or ideas that assist the development of insight or well-being. And so this means when uh, intense emotions are maybe present, uh, we can use things like, for, for example, there are many in, in the Buddhist practice and path. Uh, we can use, for example, death contemplation is one. You know, is this really worth it in the grand scheme of things? Really, is this real? I mean, how often do we actually think about the fact that we have no clue when we'll die? You know, and that uh, things aren't permanent here. And would I really get so bent out of shape about this? You know, am I going to remember this when I'm however years old on my deathbed looking back on my life? Or using, for example, when lust is present. Uh, The Buddha encouraged us to do a body contemplation. Because lust is really interesting because the emotion of sexual desire comes with it fantasy. So what you're actually lustful about is not the actual body that you want to connect with. Right or the it's or the person even it's the story about the person the fantasy about the person. You know, we sexualize. It's a part of having the the deep reptilian brain. Is we sexualize, and so the Buddha encouraged well a really good practice is to start to reflect on the actual quality and makeup of the body, the thirty two parts he calls it blood pus. Senus, bile, right? And to remember that we're all just a conglomerate of parts. So intentionally using that concept. If you're trying to connect with your partner, I probably wouldn't recommend it. Um, heart practices in Buddhism is a good uh, thing to bring to mind to intentionally form that concept. So when uh, I'm activated emotionally, practicing to myself, may I be at ease, may I be at ease, may I be kind and gentle towards myself, may I know that I'm safe and protected from harm in this moment, you know, practicing bringing these to mind. Also, this is where a lot of our therapies and 
coping skills or strategies start to come in is where we can use like dialectical behavioral therapy, different skills, cognitive behavioral therapies. We can start to use skills to manage emotion. But without awareness, skills aren't always so effective. So we build. So the purpose of this, and we don't usually do as uh, uh, psychologically based groups here, but the purpose is, is because I've found, I've sat and practiced this practice for a long time now, and one of the things that I continue to struggle with the most is uh, my relationship to emotion. A lot of the times I don't know what I'm feeling or why I'm feeling or how to manage the feeling. Uh, but developing some of these skills of simple awareness, protective awareness, introspective awareness, and bringing some of these concepts and practices to mind have really been uh, night and day as far as my emotional health, my mental health. And this is what I've gotten out of my, you know, part of what I've gotten out of my practice. Some of these knowing about these concepts are easy to talk about, but the practice, the experience of them is much more challenging. And so the encouragement is to maybe not even worry so much about if we're doing it right or you know, what's the list or what's the thing that I need to remember, but just being more curious about our emotional life in general and bringing that into our practice. Uh, Daniel Goleman, he's the where I got a lot of this from. He's the author of Emotional Intelligence Theory. He talks about uh, the need to, uh, in order to regulate emotions, to be able to name emotion, access emotion, understand emotion, and then manage. So very important, I feel like, to be said, we're not trying to meditate our way out of or prevent or outsmart the suffering that comes from being an emotional being, but instead to be more connected to our emotional life because I think that this is what gives our lives depth, meaning, In their chat, the, one of the most challenging parts of, of my inner experience, sadness, loneliness, fear, shame, you know, and starting to ask ourselves, what is that? How is that? And what's needed to respond to that? What skills or what behaviors, what thoughts, what meditate, you know, what skills do I have to help me work with this? Nothing is a substitute for good old-fashioned practice. Um, We know, we know through uh, empirical research that mindfulness is the core ability that enables us to be able to practice anything like CBT or DBT. It's the core ability that helps us to even manage communication, to connect in our relationships. The Buddha said in his discourses that all of us already have access to this capacity to be mindful. It's not magical. It's not creating or meditating away or into some magical state. 
lobotomy or whatever. Sometimes I wish it was. But it's more about coming directly into the dynamic nature of all of our experience with more of an honest gauge of how it is. And we develop wisdom through doing that. We become more familiar with our inner landscape. My shame doesn't manifest the same way yours will. We're unique in these ways. And so I think, you know, we know in our culture you can practice sports and get good at them. You know, we know this. We know you can practice intellectual knowledge and get good at it. You can study and learn the shit, right? We know you can practice language and get good at language. You can also practice with your emotional health. You know, and if I want to master anything, it's not reading a book. It's not learning all of the suttas or all of the things so I can say I know something. I want to master my emotional life. You know, I want to get better at it. And, uh, you know, and that's just, I think, a matter of patience and practice, commitment. The last thing I'll say is the Buddha said that the whole of his practice relies on community. That we don't actually, in fact, wake up alone. We know through... You know, attachment theory and a lot of uh, things that we need each other to regulate emotion. When I share with you, hey man, I'm feeling fucked up and afraid, I feel like I said some dumb shit or I didn't get my uh, test scores or whatever it may be and I feel scared or alone or afraid or whatever and you're there to hold and to empathize, you normalize that for me. You remind me that the emotion that's taken over my perception is just that and that that can regulate that can settle and I can come back down to earth I can attune I can can have some healthy attachment and connection so why do we sit here and why is the room full instead of us just meditating at home because I don't actually think that and the monastic communities themselves even people that have decided to leave the world and go practice for their whole lives they do it in community 